Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the latest episode of We Got Planning News View. It's particularly fitting in that in this episode where we're talking about the new digital processes that we screwed up our, our digital introduction uh, because we don't know how to use Zoom. So uh, uh, absolutely poetic that one. Um, we hope this finds you having had a uh, fantastic week and uh, as always we're delighted to see so many familiar names amongst today's viewers. Um, let me start with the usual housekeeping. Um, and firstly, remind, of course, to consider making a charity donation either to the NHS Combined Charities page, just as important as ever in light of the recent news, or a local charity of your choice. And secondly, um, as always, please do keep the questions, comments and banter coming in the Q&A box. Um, every week we put at least one of the live audience questions to our special guest. Um, and uh, this week I think it's Paul's turn to pose the audience question. We had a lofty ambition of, of trying to do an audience poll today, but given how we started on Zoom, <laughs> that, that may be about as likely as me becoming hope, but we might give it a go. Um, now our, our special guest this week is, is Rebecca, Rebecca Phillips, um, professional uh, lead with Planning Appeals, Planning Expectorate. Rebecca, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us and indeed um, uh, traveling into the office uh, uh, to ensure steady internet connection. Um, uh, perhaps you could uh, tell us where, where which office you're calling from um, and uh, introduce um, the theme that you've nominated for us this week and tell us uh, what you're drinking. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. I'm Rebecca Phillips. I'm professional lead um, for planning appeals with the planning inspectorate. And I'm dialing in today from the Cardiff office because we have headquarters in Bristol and we've got a Cardiff office. As well. um, so the, the theme I've chosen and bang on cue, Paul's turned up with his prop. That's fantastic. Paul, <laughs> love it. <laughs> Is virtual reality. I thought since we're going to talk about virtual events, then virtual, virtual reality would be a good theme to have, a little bit sort of Star Trek meets some planner acts and something along those, along those lines. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Well, um, on that note, let's introduce the panel, see what they've got to offer by way of uh, virtual reality, etc. So, uh, Mary, starting with you. Um, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, lovely to see you all. Uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm in the offices of town legal as usual in the city of London and not feeling that I'm making a great contribution to, to this. I'm merely sitting here drinking my cup of tea out of my town uh, legal mug, not feeling that um, there's a huge amount that I can contribute to on the virtual reality, but wanting to reassure you that it really is me and not my virtual real life twin sister. <laughs> Some of you will know does exist. 
to check it out on our page. I would normally go to Chris now, but as, as you might have noticed, Chris isn't actually here yet. Um, I, I, I don't think it's because he's still asking Simon Gallagher questions about... <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> but uh, hopefully he'll be with us soon. He's still cross-examining. He's still cross-examining. Darling, can I just say, I've just got a news report from the BBC. He was seen running around the centre of Birmingham screaming standard methodology. <laughs> Paul, where are you? You're not at home, are you? You're somewhere I, else. I'm, I'm not at home. I'm interfering with a, a couple of days' holiday, and I'm happy to say that if you look over my shoulder, that's Yorkshire. I'm in the Yorkshire Dales in a beautiful cottage. Uh, however, in light of Rebecca's theme, I've brought my little friend along. He actually writes all my cross-examination in reality. <laughs> and in terms of drinking, uh, I've had a selection. I've got um, toast to toast the inspectorate for the virtual inquiries that I've been doing for the last uh, two and a half months of my life. I've got a whole series of beers here from uh, the local uh, Kirby Lonsdale Brewery. So by the end of the show, I will be quite uh, sozzled. And more importantly, I've got a little gift for Mary, which is... Some Lakeland Damson gin, gin liqueur, which I shall bring down to London next time I'm there. How lovely. Thank you. Fantastic. Sash, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I, I've slightly um, had a tough day because I had lunch with three property barristers, so I had to pretend I knew about law for the first time in my career. What, what you mean is you're drunk? Explains <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks> a lot. Certainly <laughs> not, but I was slightly... It's interesting having spending time with people who don't practice in planning and explaining the planning system to them. But I'm in London and I'm much looking forward to today's show. And Chris has finally finished cross-examining Simon about the standard method um, exactly one week later. Chris, uh, tell us where, where you are, what you've been up to. Apart I am in an inquiry that finished 38 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we love a discussion about conditions, don't we? Hey, <laughs> those garages—they just—they just need to be so clearly set out in a condition. So yeah, I'm um, I'm back at my Ledbury Inquiry Secretary of State case, but we're doing it from the offices of Rich uh, Planning in Cheltenham, and uh, we've just finished conditions and closing submissions tomorrow morning. So I am drinking water. Oh, <laughs> I'm uh, Charlie Banners, as you probably know by now, um, Keating Chambers. I'm at home today for the first time in a while. There's a relatively high chance I'm going to get video bombed at some point by a two-month-old baby or a delinquent three-year-old, but we'll see how we get on. <laughs> well, those of you who know me well know that my music taste is beaten only by my taste in music movies. Uh, and the, the best movie series of all time is, of course, the Terminator series, the epic adventures of the travelling robots. Terminator 3 is called The Rise of the Machines, uh, which is sort of analogous to what's happened in Planning Appeals this year. And the images on this particular beer um, sort of reminded me of a comedy. It's a, it's a sort of human-shaped skeleton head with a gun. And that sort of reminded me when I was in Waitrose this afternoon of, uh, of the Terminator series. So um, from Terminator to um, David Elvin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good segue i think they call that exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, who's going to tell us about it? sasha you're going to tell us about david's judgment in the thurlow lodge case thurlow lodge of course being literally around the corner from where i am right now i am and i'm i'm just i'm going to mark the end of your judicial aspirations charlie <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about Furlow Lodge, which is the most is an exemplar 
of of a Kensington and Chelsea dispute. Now, most of our audience will not know about car lifts, which is something that I think I think there's a financial threshold by which you consider um, car lifts. So probably the only person who's ever got a car lift brochure is Chris, amongst <laughs> our current our current audience. But basically, this is a spat about a car lift that was granted planning consent by Royal borough kensington and chelsea and it's like when we tell the world that planning's really important and really seminal you don't talk about the cases that involve the insertion of a car lift because obviously people you like you don't do things that are very important but this involved a spat between someone wanting a car lift and someone who said you shouldn't have a car lift and it's the grant of consent by kensington and chelsea for a car lift and listed building consent and this is, as you said, Charlie, a decision of David Elvin QC sitting as a deputy high court. And the points that I wanted to flag up for our audience is there are four key points that it is very, very important that one does not seek to justify post the decision of members through the, through the putting before the high court of additional evidence. The court will not look at that sympathetically or however tempting it is whether you're claimant defendant or interested party generally it is an approach that is not endorsed and actually is positively resisted by the court so that's the first point in this case i'm not just making a point against the claimant the interested party also sought to put new material in to justify the decision of the council and and the judge was pretty scathing about that approach it's an absolute clear position that do not put in fresh evidence for the court to consider. The second point is the interpretation policy, notwithstanding Tesco and Dundee, the courts will not take a strictly legalistic approach to the interpretation of policy. And, and David Elvin is quite critical of the claimant's attempt of what he characterises as a highly legalistic approach to the interpretation policy. I think us barristers are always tempted to be very, very legalistic and, and puritanical about the wording of policies but the courts generally do not adopt or endorse such interpretation and that's certainly the case in this case the also it reiterates the test again because when we all read planning officers reports we like to say well actually they've got this wrong and they've got that wrong the test in law is whether the members are significantly misled and that again is reinforced in this judgment, you need to satisfy the court that the members were significantly misled by the planning officer's report and David Elvin was convinced in this case that they were not. And lastly, and again, the, what I'm doing is effectively giving a ladybird guide to the fundamental principles of high court challenges, whether they be 288 or judicial review. The last point that the court reinforces is the court will not substitute its judgment for that of members in terms of planning judgments. And however, however excited we all get about planning judgments being wrong in officers' reports, the court will simply not go there. So I think for those of you who want a quick guide to what the courts will entertain on a 288, i.e. a challenge for a planning appeal or a judicial review of a grant planning consent, this decision of David Elvin is a very good exposition of the fundamental principles of judicial review of such challenges. Brilliant. Thanks, Sasha. Well, we're going to go straight into uh, one of three planning appeal decisions we've got because we want to get through those as quickly as possible so as to have as much time as possible with Rebecca. And, and the first of our appeal decisions of the week um, relates to the Citroen site in Brentford. And Chris, you're going to tell us about that one. 
This is a case involving uh, redevelopment of a brownfield site in London, and um, it's about heritage primarily. The, the appeal was allowed. It was a decision of Inspector David Nicholson, who is a heritage expert, and the whole case hinges on heritage. The housing uh, aspect of this was 50% uh, affordable housing, and he recommended approval, and the Secretary of State did uh, allow the uh, appeal on the basis that, and this is a phrase we should all be looking out for, he, he took account, the Secretary of State, of the acute housing shortage right across London. Those are the Secretary of State's words, right across London. Um, and so it's pretty significant uh, that the housing case here with the additional affordable housing, remember it's 50% in the emerging new London plan, which the inspector assumed would be in place by the time the Secretary of State made his decision, but the Secretary of State uh, has made his decision ahead of that. So um, they've over-provided against policy, but against acute housing needs, um, you can, of course, achieve that. Now, um, in terms of the heritage, this is an absolutely fascinating case in which you're dealing with multiple levels of heritage assets. So there's Kew Gardens, but there's a whole series of conservation areas as well, and they mesh together to create a extremely complex heritage backcloth. And to be honest, when I read this, it was almost like reading a landscape and visual impact assessment, because you're dealing with so many factors and you're trying to attribute weight and significance to them that you're, you're then creating something of a matrix um, in which you assess the heritage impacts. But what's really interesting in this case, uh, I think, is what the inspector says um, at a paragraph that I would have screen shared, but you can read at your leisure, which is um, 15, the inspector's conclusions, 15.23. He says, above all, the overall harm should be some sort of product of impact and importance. So you measure those two together with the balance tip firmly in favour of preservation. However, to argue that a slight detrimental change to the setting should automatically be equated with considerable harm on account of the importance of the asset would be uh, an extreme, if not unreasonable position. Now, I think that's fascinating because mm. we're told in various places in the MPPF on heritage assets, in areas of outstanding natural beauty, that you should give um, great weight to these factors. But that isn't the same as giving great weight to the harm. And that's a really useful paragraph about how you might handle the issue, even when you're dealing with world heritage areas. Um, he says it would prejudice, Inspector, the balance required by the decision maker under section 196, that's less than substantial harm, as we know. Considerable importance and weight to the desirability of preserving does not necessarily result in considerable weight to the harm. And I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's such a clear exposition on the issue. Providing the desirability of the preserving has been given considerable weight. So you properly looked at the issue and the balance tipped appropriately. The assessment of the weight to the actual harm to significance in the overall balance is a matter for the decision maker, not really for the courts to prescribe the weight that you give the harm, in my view. Um, and, uh, and he goes on to then carry out a series of assessments. Now, I can't do justice for that in four minutes. But what's really interesting also, uh, 1529 is the handling of cumulative harm. And here's another tall building in London, close to Kew. There's a, a, a quite a large series of 1960s power blocks 
uh, called Havering, the Havering buildings, which are quite close by. And it's all about the cumulative impact of those. And he sets out very helpfully three ways in which cumulative impact could be looked at. He says, first, it should be the proposal that should be assessed initially, the proposal itself, the, uh, followed by a cumulative assessment. So you look at other harm. Secondly, the existing harm, so those 1960s tablocks, should never be used to justify additional harm. You can't, you can't say that, well, that's there already, so you know, this, is, this is of less impact. And finally, the combination of existing and proposed harm would reach a tipping point, and this would be particularly relevant to judging the overall effects. And a number of the uh, opponents to this scheme actually said that it reached a tipping point where it was an unacceptable impact, yet another tall building. Contrast this with the approach in the, um, the Chiswick Curve building, which was much taller. There they argued that there was no harm to heritage assets. Uh, and actually the building was of such a uh, fantastic and exceptional design that that outweighed the heritage harm. Um, that persuaded the inspector in that case, but not in this case. In this case, the, um, the expert, Chris Mealy, who I spoke to this morning, he accepted a degree of harm but he didn't assert the building outweighed that. He said the building and the design were issues that were not relevant to the actual heritage assessment. And that appears to be the way in which the inspector has dealt with this. There's so much in here. It's fascinating in understanding how to deal with harm, listed buildings, world heritage areas, registered gardens, conservation areas. It's all there and a really useful read the inspector's conclusions, section 15 onwards. Well done to Rupert Warren and his team for this success. It's, um, it's a really interesting case. Thanks, Chris. Um, well, next up is um, Mary, and you're going to tell us about um, a case in Rendlesham. Before we do, can I just say thank you for loads of people asking some really interesting questions um, for Rebecca. I think I might ditch one of mine, uh, actually, and ask uh, a second audience question. In the meantime, we are at any moment now going to try and start one of our first uh, straw polls to get people thinking uh, in advance of, of Rebecca's slot. We'll probably mess it up because our IT uh, is uh, <laughs> questionable. <laughs> um, let's give it a whirl. Um, and in the meantime, while we're trying to get that IT working, Mary, tell us about the Rendlesham appeal. Well, let me take you to Rendlesham, where um, there was an inquiry. Uh, we had Paul Shadarivian, the Shad, as I like to call him, charming chap acting for the appellant, and Zach Simons acting um, here for the um, local authority. This was an appeal um, for 75 dwellings on a site that was already allocated in the development plan, but allocated for 50 units. And reading between the lines, the application that was the subject of this appeal was the second application that had been put in in relation to this site, the first one having been refused. And there had been a, a, a opportunity for a pre-app on this in which the council had expressed their views um, about the design and um, unfortunately here the appellant didn't prevail and one of the reasons, well, the key reason in my view that the appellant did not prevail was because of the uh, judgment expressed by the inspector on design. You will all be familiar with um, section or chapter 12 of the MPPF and the government's, uh, the importance that the government is placing these days on good design. 
And in, in this particular case, the inspector was dealing with a, a full application and he described the layout as being um, one uh, which resulted in a uniform and regimented appearance, um, which was indicative of a standardized approach um, that was something that was imposed on the site rather than offering a bespoke response to the site. Pretty damning, I, I think, um, from the inspector in that sense. And the other interesting thing um, that, that I want to draw out of this is what he said about the social interaction and community safety, because there were really no active frontages throughout the majority um, of the site. And that was a cause of, of great concern. Lots of cul-de-sacs too, adjoining rear gardens, um, which he described as enabling criminal access to the properties to, to take place. So it, it failed on that count because he took the view that the design wouldn't encourage social interaction um, and it wouldn't take into account the need for crime prevention. It's quite unusual to see refusals in, in this day and age on the basis of those sorts of points. But in the end, um, despite the fact that, um, and this is another um, uh, twist in, in this tale, by the time they got to appeal and by the time the inspector was doing his planning balance, the council was able to demonstrate a five-year supply of deliverable houses. And so the development plan policies that were most important were uh, up to date. And this wasn't uh, a, a case of engaging the tilted balance. N nevertheless, he gave the additional 25 dwellings um, weight because that would be beneficial in boosting housing supply. And he gave moderate weight to the social and economic benefits because of course of the existence of the five-year supply. Had there not been a five-year supply, uh, one surmises he would have given more weight to the social and economic benefits. Um, the, real, the real killer was the substantial weight that he gave to the poor design and his conclusion that the proposal failed to comply with the development plan and that there was no reason um, to grant a permission otherwise than in accordance with the plan. So on that basis, it, it failed. There was also a cost application which partially succeeded because there were uh, certain reasons for refusal which were not um, substantiated on appeal. Um, otherwise, it's, it was a, it, the, the cost application was a, a reminder that where you come in with information post a decision to refuse, and that additional information results in the reason for refusal being withdrawn. That's not a, that's not in itself evidence of an unreasonable behaviour. Um, so that's Suffolk. That's Rendlesham and Suffolk. Back to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mary. And from Suffolk to Surrey, um, we thought the most appropriate person to tell us about Surrey was Paul. Um, oh, you shower off. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, there we are. So, the, the, my, me and my little friend have worked out how to do it, and I will lend him for uh, for training for for other members of the bar. <laughs> Go so, on, Paul. Take it away. So, so my case, I'm delighted to say, in, involves my favourite inspector, George Baird. That's not because he's an extraordinarily competent inspector, 
but because he managed to get one of my closing submissions uh, copied and pasted in part into a Secretary of State recommendation, uh, which had the words just plain daft within it. I, I don't think anybody else has got that into, a, into a, an inspector's recommendation. Thank you, R2. Um, so this is a case involving uh, a dismissed appeal for 83 houses uh, in Runnymede District. And if I can slide through, this is just showing off now, obviously, to paragraph 26. Hopefully you can see that this is a case where there was a huge number of uh, points in the case. So there was um, access, the effects on the uh, special protection area, heritage, noise, sustainable developments, economic benefits, uh, and also prejudice to the neighbourhood plan. And ultimately, the inspector said compliance with some, conflict with others, development plan as a whole uh, meant uh, that was conflicting, therefore the appeal was dismissed. So it was a straight uh, situation where some elements in favour, some elements again, the inspector takes an overall view about conflicts with the development plan. But the, the thing that I found most interesting in, in this case is uh, the discussion about the neighbourhood plan, which uh, is issue number one and has the, the, the words which... Uh, uh, send a shiver down my, my spine when I see this in relation to neighbourhood plan, and you can see it there, prematurity. And the inspector in this case has, has essentially dismissed the appeal in part because uh, the scheme was, was considered to be premature in relation to the preparation of the neighbourhood plan. Um, it, the neighbourhood plan was at a stage where it was at submission stage before it was examined, and the inspector at uh, paragraph eight, for those who were quick off the, the mark, uh, concludes in the last sentence that the effect will be so substantial uh, and its its impact will be so significant that permission would undermine the plan making process. This was a site which was actually allocated for 28 units, application for 83 units. Um, the old guidance used to say that if you refused on the grounds of prematurity, you had to identify exactly how and why. I don't think the inspector actually has done that in this instance. And it's slightly concerning to me that, that, that effectively it's been asserted that merely because the site is bigger than the allocation that therefore it will be premature. Um, it was a written reps appeal. Uh, and th there's a few other points in here that I could bring out, but we're running out of time a little bit. So, uh, but, but I do wonder whether this is one of those cases where frankly, the hybrid type of inquiry would be, hybrid, hybrid appeal would be useful. Deal with it on written reps, but where there's the three or four big points, um, then the inspector can revert back to the parties and say, well, Tell me how it's going to affect the neighbourhood plan. Explain to me what that other issue is. And at the very end of the, the appeal, it also makes the point that the 106 hadn't been signed. So one of the points on a, on a sort of interaction of the inspector coming on for an hour with the parties might have been, are you going to sign the 106? Otherwise, we're wasting our time here. I think it's actually an exemplar of where a hybrid, hybrid appeal could work. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Paul. We're going to um, ask Rebecca about hybrid inquiries in a moment, so hybrid hybrid appeals, I should say, in a moment. So we'll bear that example in mind. Um, but but now for our interview, Rebecca. And firstly, can I say again, Rebecca, thank you very much indeed um, for joining us. Uh, I know there's a lot of people uh, today, uh, particularly interested in what you've got to say, and we've had a huge amount of questions for you, which is great. Um, perhaps we start off with just telling viewers uh, briefly what your role at PINs involves. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. So I'm professional lead for planning appeals and largely my role is around supporting and giving advice to inspectors on professional matters and also making sure that the training is in place to maintain and enhance our quality of decision making too. 
Um, but myself and there are other professional uh, leads as well. So you've had David Smith on episode one, um, sorry, series one of the of the programme who you'll have met. And there are other professional leads for the local plan work, enforcement specialist casework and um, national infrastructure as, as well. But we also have an outward facing role in terms of engaging with government departments, particularly MHCLG uh, and industry bodies to ensure that um, you know we have input and advice to the development of changes to policy and legislation and of course we're tasked with delivering that too so it's uh, it's, it's it's essentially in, in a in a nutshell that's 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 what we do brilliant well thanks Rebecca well um, from that perspective what would you say are the the main lessons um, that uh, you and, and the inspector have learned from digital events so far Overall, they've been very positively received. So we do ask for feedback from all participants. And um, just to give you a flavor, 81% said that they rated their experiences good or excellent. And 94% that they'd be happy to undertake another virtual event. So overall, that's been really, really positive. Um, in terms of lessons learned, well, we're finding that they're very um, in, in resource and time intensive as well compared to perhaps a traditional in-person event. So they do take um, resources to support our inspectors in running those events administratively and, and technically too. Um, they are more accessible though. We've had a, you know, I've got some statistics on some of the, the local plan examination in South Oxfordshire, how we have managed to engage and make it more accessible to people, not having to travel um, sometimes large, large areas or, or taking time off work. They can, you know, dip in and out too. Um, in terms of taking longer, well, we need to ensure that people aren't spending too long at their screens. So we've tended to break those down into around an hour and a half of uh, sitting time over, over three periods of that per day. So they can take longer. In that, we need to make sure that inspectors engage early in the process to make sure that timetables are realistic and that advocates can keep to timetables too. So we don't have a situation where we're running over, um, you know, what, what is the timetable uh, schedule and that they don't run on longer than anticipated. That's really important. Mm. On the upside, then we have found that because participants tend to address the inspector face-to-face -face rather than the, the, the room, then they can be a lot less controversial and put participants at ease as well. So often you may have witnesses in, in an, you know, with an audience that's perhaps hostile to what they have to say. And this has made it a lot more less controversial and easier for the inspector to do some sort of crowd control as well to make sure there's no uh, inappropriate behavior or, or, or anything of that like, you know, they, they want to do their best to hear the evidence and to do that properly, they need to put all participants and witnesses at ease too. So, you know, in terms of an inspector's role in running the event, that's, that's you know, quite often easier to do that. Um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, the, the inspectors and participants are more familiar, you know, when they're getting used to the functionality of it. So inspectors are trained to run events. You know, we've got a huge amount of experience in running hearings and inquiries. The principles don't change. It's just getting everyone comfortable with the technology um, and the platforms and, 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 you know, what to do, how to allow people into the, into the virtual room, how to use the chat function and, and mute, etc. So all of those things, we're rolling out training to ensure that all our inspectors and support staff are comfortable with doing that and they get an opportunity to test it. You'll probably be involved in, you know, test events yourself too. 
And it sounds like it's been a bit of a, a journey of discovery for the Spectra because back in sort of March, April, the, the, the message very much was, well, we, we can't rush this because, um, because of third parties and, and public participation. And actually, the message you're getting across now is actually it's um, it been an enhancement on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, those, as I say, those participants who've engaged with us and, and actually been part of a virtual event have, you know, very much keen to do it again. So I think absolutely that does help to make it more accessible for people not having to take, you know, lots of time off work, perhaps. And, um, you know, overall, it's been very positive in that, in that, in that um, way, too. And once we've got the, the magic vaccination, assuming that is going to happen in, in whatever it is, three, six months time, um, are, are digital events going to be the default going forward post-COVID or, or are we still going to have in-person inquiries or is there going to be some kind of test in guidance? How do you see that playing out? Well, it's early days and I think we have to review the situation. I mean, don't forget that arguably that's beyond our control. We have a written ministerial statement that says that, you know, virtual is the default for now. So that would have to change for us to go back to, um, you know, in-person events being the default position. Um, but that said, you know, we, we do need to review how successful or otherwise virtual events have been on our performance, on our customer experience, on, on resources and timing and, you know, all, all of that too in the mix. Um, and I think we have a role to play in engaging with the industry to to ask what they think that um you know whether virtual events have have uh, you know going to be part of our sort of target operating model in the future if not entirely then there may be an opportunity to include a virtual element in them and i think we do have to engage more widely to see what what that you know what that might look like and and what that role might be and uh, on that subject, here's our poll. I don't know if we get told how many people have responded. Um, I don't know. I'll see if we can find out and let you know in due course. But question two, post-COVID, would you prefer to do a hearing or inquiry? 12% digitally, 29% in person. Interestingly, 43% hybrid, which segues into my next question. 16% don't mind. Um, we'll try and get, I, I think um, Rob, our, our IT assistant, is able to capture these. So if it's very interest, Rebecca will send these through and the, and the numeric, in a GPDR compliant way. I don't want the men in blue helmets taking me away, but um, we'll do that. We'll come back to the other, if we can keep these results up, uh, we'll come back to the ones in a moment. Um, hybrid inquiries, um, the power's there. Um, how do you see it working? I mean, Paul's given one illustration, Mary in previous episodes and I have talked about similarly about um, gauging up a written reps appeal on a particularly difficult issue. Um, there may be obviously already post Roosevelt, there were sort of think, events that were, had characteristics of both a hearing and an inquiry. Um, how, how do you currently see that working? And will PINs be issuing guidance in due course to inspectors and or participants on this issue? Okay, well, before I answer that particular question, Charlie, I just want to point out in, in the um, poll I can see in front of me, um, the question's been asked about whether, you know, post-COVID you prefer to do a hearing or inquiry, mm -hmm. digitally in-person, hybrid or don't mind. So, so is that we we don't confuse uh, the audience and, and this is what we're trying to get across. Mm -hmm. What we're calling a hybrid of event as in, you know, part virtual, part in-person, we're calling that a, a blended event. So if you hear us talk about a blended event, that could mean that an element of it could be in person and an element, other elements of it could be virtual. Um, in terms of the, the question you asked about hybrid appeals, that is really what we now have enshrined in primary legislation through the Planning and Recovery Act. We've now got measures to actually enable inspectors to use a more dynamic and flexible approach to how they hear the evidence. So for example, they can deal with elements of appeal by using different procedures now. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, that could be dealt with by a different process of so written representations, hearings or, or inquiry, rather than just one of these procedures per appeal. So that's what we mean by hybrid approach. Um, these changes will also apply to other types of casework, whereas they, they hadn't to date. Uh, enforcement listed building appeals, for example. And of course, this brings us in line with the legislative provisions that they have here in Wales um, for the last few years. So I think the, the ability then to use this, what we call a hybrid approach, um, will provide inspectors the ability to operate a more flexible process, as I said. Um, so, for example, inquiries can be run through dealing with some of the evidence through more informal roundtable discussions or hearings. Um, and for some topics, they might, you know, might agree that it's it's sort of um, appropriate to deal with that through written representations, perhaps it is not, a, you know, one of the one of the key uh, main issues. Um, and similarly, hearings could be dealt with topics, you know, through the usual roundtable informal discussion and elements of that could be also dealt with by way of written representation. Now, for many inspectors, this won't be new on inquiries because we've been running uh, inquiries through a, a pilot, through the Rosewell Review recommendations, um, and that's implementing one of those recommendations where through uh, agreement with the parties, inspectors have had the ability then to deal with the evidence um, either through cross-examination, through the traditional way that they would do through inquiry, but also um, through agreement, through dealing with some of the evidence through a more informal roundtable discussion or what would normally be uh, experienced through a hearing and, and possibly some of the some of the evidence through written representations only. Um, of course, we haven't been dealing with enforcement or listed building appeals that way. And that, that, that's a, a change there. And the difference is, of course, now, as I said earlier, we could we could deal with appeals, hearings um, through that way, too, by dealing you know, partly through informal roundtable discussion and partly through written, written representations as well. Now, in terms of our procedural guidance, that, that is being changed. We've drafted changes to that. But before publishing it, we're waiting to see whether there are any consequential amendments to be made through secondary legislation. And once we know um, if there are and, and what the extent and nature of those will be, then clearly we can issue our, our new updated procedural guidance that will lay all this out and make it very clear for all those involved in the process. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, just then to move on to the issue of current timescales. Um, a, a lot of comments, as you might have seen, because I've been posting them in the chat just so that people, all of us can see the comments coming in. A, a lot of people have uh, got their own anecdotes um, of, of cases which have taken um, a long time to come on. Um, I, I've mentioned to you, as you know, a particular case where uh, a hearing is being sourced. Uh, we put the appeal in in early June and there's no start date yet. Someone's mentioned a case where they've been waiting 19 months to get a hearing. Somebody else, a written reps appeal, put in in April, no appointed inspector. Um, and indeed, you see the poll. We've had um, 255 respondees to the poll. Three quarters say the current timescales for progressing appeals are too unpredictable. Now, obviously understanding the challenges of being a public sector authority with finite resources at the best of times, let alone this year. And, um, you know, I don't want in any way to come across as hostile the, on this issue. But what can you say to the to the three quarters of our poll respondees who've, who say there is too much uncertainty right now? Um, what reassurance can you give them that, um, that things are being done to address that? And how quickly will it be addressed? Okay, thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that we are 
doing very well in terms of keep, keeping Casebook progressing. Um, you know, since since lockdown, we've we've carried on. Uh, you know, progressing casework virtually, and we've reorganised ourselves to to manage to enable casework to progress um, ever since lockdown to do that. And you know, it's worth emphasising that on in written representations, then you know, we do more than two thousand written reps this month. Um, you know, as well as site visits and hearings and inquiries on on that too. So if I can give you some statistics in terms of the um, what we're doing now compared to pre pre lockdown. Um, over the last few months then the rate of appeals decided by written reps has been around you know 1200 to 1400 a month typically. If we compare that to you know pre-pandemic that was typically 1500 to 1700 and bearing in mind we're gearing up to do around 1600 in October then with really as much difference in terms of keeping that um, you know, keeping the, the case progressing in, in those ways. Now, against that, we've seen that the submission of appeals is actually very high, much higher than we would have anticipated. It's, it's carried on pre, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, sort of levels. Um, and, and it continues to rise, you know, we, we're, getting, we're still receiving submissions um, now. Now we do have the capacity to deal with this new work, but it does mean that it's likely to take until next spring to recover to pre-pandemic caseload um, levels in some casework areas. As I said, with, 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 with written reps, we are up there pretty much to what we were pre-pandemic. Now we have increased the number of virtual inquiries and hearings um, across appeals, local plans and, and NSIP um, as well. And by the end of September, it will have delivered in all 28 inquiries, um, 70 hearings, um, six local plan examinations um, and hearings for seven you know, national infrastructure projects as well. Um, we're learning from this too. You know, it's, it's been a, a fairly new operating model for us. So, you know, of, of the six local plan examinations that we've run during this time, um, South Oxfordshire South local plan examination, you'll some of you be familiar with, of course. Um, now, you know, the, the inspector there ran those and, and gave us some excellent feedback on how that really, really improved their, you know, ability to run a, what was, a, a, you know, a large controversial examination, um, but very, but, you know, as I said before, with participants there, put at ease and, and, and it ran very smoothly. But they pointed out that their website, the local plan examination website there, had over 14,000 viewers of the, of the event over four weeks. Now that's considerably higher than what we had experienced through a traditional uh, examination as well. So I said, you know, sometimes we have up to 10 virtual events running simultaneously too. And as I said earlier, that takes a lot of resources. It's, it, it's more time consuming as well um, to do that from not just the administration staff or the technical staff, but also for the inspectors too, because they take longer um, to get through. Uh, but again, you know, new inquiries that are being submitted are being run again, to Roseville targets, so that's huge. That's that's you know that that's a, a massive increase in in time um, there. You know from submission right through to receipt of a decision, um, and that that's as it was before the pandemic. I mean, the diff the, the, I mean, I can, the difficulty is, I suppose, again, it's the finite pool of resources. And I'm looking on, on my other computer screen at the statistics published today mm. uh, on August 2020, 
um, turnaround times and for hearings the median turnaround time was 44 weeks which is you know not, not sh much short of a year now n a large part of that nearly a year was before covid and it does it does seem to me i just wonder whether the the target set by uh, mhclg and the rose roll view for inquiries has meant that that hearings have effectively had to suffer because of the prioritization of inquiries um is, is that is there any truth in that well, interestingly, before the pandemic hit, we were doing a piece of work on hearings to see, you know, sort of end-to-end -end processes, why, you know, why it was taking the time it was. Um, and we will, of course, go back to doing that work once we've got casework levels, you know, back to, back to what they were. Um, you know, as I say, all I can stress at the moment is our priority is to keep casework moving as best we can through all through all processes that we that we need to um, and recover, you know, performance to what it was pre pre-pandemic in, in all casework areas. One last question for me, then round to the others. Um, from This is actually not my question, but it's a brilliant question from Grant. Um, will the inspectorate be sufficiently tooled up to examine what could be a few hundred new local plans under the new post-white paper planning regime, all on the same timetable? Um, <laughs> and, uh, the legislation is enacted. Um, uh, you, you can plead fifth, fifth Amendment if you want on that one, but it's a very good question. Only one you're, you're asking yourself. Well, you know, as I say, that's a little, perhaps a little bit, you know, further down the line when we know the exact extent of, of the changes and, and what the, the reforms actually look like. Um, but yeah, we're alive to it. We're certainly alive to what that might mean for our casework and, and how we need to, you know, redeploy resources. It might mean in, initially local plan examinations submitted to us, you know, fall uh, and in you know appeals rise you know ahead of any new um, examinations or adoption of new local plans um, and then of course it, it could possibly mean that we do see a lot a huge increase in the number of uh, local plan exam submitted for examination but you know we're, we're alive to that we're, we're making sure our resources are there and we're making sure we're training inspectors in the right areas to meet those demands as well. I hope, I hope for your sake it also helps you get some more money from whoever, whoever ultimately funds, <laughs> funds pins. Um, right, enough from me. Um, Sasha, you had a question. I do. Rebecca, I'm like the rest of our panellists. I'm faced by a virtual future. I think I've worked out I've got 10 of the next 14 weeks staring at a box in my room at a computer screen. So I wanted to ask, from the feedback from inspectors, what, what are they saying that they like about virtual events? And what do they not like? What are the lessons that have been learned so far in the in the programme in the past two or three months? Yeah, well, I think from inspectors, um, initially, we, we need to make sure that there is sufficient training and familiarisation with the, the procedure because, you know, clearly um, it's it's daunting, isn't it? You're, you're sat at home working virtually. You haven't got the backup, you know, that you, you may have when you're at a, an in-person event, potentially when things go go wrong or, you know, you need, so we, we need, first of all, inspectors know how to run events with familiarization and running sessions to make sure that they're then confident to use the technology. And of course, as I said about you know, these events being more resource intensive, we've got to make sure they've got the technical and administration support there too. So that's one element. Once that's been overcome, inspectors are happy to undertake virtual events. They've, if they've done one, they're happy to carry on doing more. We're learning from this. There's a number of things on the human level for inspectors. I mean, you know, I don't think any inspector, and I'd be included in this, would like to think of a, of a future world entirely virtual. We all miss the interaction and we all really miss, you know, yeah. 
being in a room and, and engaging with others, I think that's on a human level, that, that's very, very much, we're all in the same boat there and we very much wouldn't want to see a future of purely virtual events. That's, you know, really different. Mm. Um, but also on the human level, there are some upsides to it. You know, inspectors don't have to travel uh, across the country and, and leave their families be home for weeks on end, you know, and that, that can be difficult. Yeah. They're, they're, they're usually at home then for, you know, bath time, bedtime, they've got the kids and all, all these human things that I'm sure everyone that participates in a virtual event would, would you know, welcome. But I think, yeah, absolutely. We, we wouldn't want to face a completely virtual world in future. We, we, you know, a mix would be good. And it'd be, you know, it'd be good to see, you know, virtual having an element of, a, you know, being, being an important part of the, the future, but not totally. Mm. And to be honest, as a father of two young children, I have a very selfish preference for digital events right now. I mean, there are some fairly obvious diversity wins um, for yeah. the digital allows us. Uh, Mary, your question. My question was was uh, really to ask why pins aren't being more transparent about current timescales um, and success rates. I mean, I take, for example, today's publication, which is telling us about the August uh, 2020 decision summary. One of the most frustrating things at the moment is that people are waiting for a, a, a much longer period than they've experienced previously in order to get registered. So when for and get a validation date. So when Charlie says, oh, the median is 44 weeks for Section 78 um, appeals to be determined by hearings that rather masks the three months that people um, can wait in order to get validation and i i don't understand why pins is not is more, more transparent because it would it would help inform decisions that parties make about whether or not to participate and what the time scales of particip participation and therefore the costs of participation would mean so could we not have some more transparency, please, from PINs on that uh, level? Okay, well, we do publish regular statistics and you'll have seen those that were published today um, around our timescales. That did pause during lockdown so that we didn't give any sort of false information um, of that kind. Um, but I know we've just published our MPL handling times, you say on gov.uk, we, we, we also repeat that then on, on our LinkedIn pages and, and, and Twitter, etc. Um, and we'll be publishing another performance update very shortly as well. We're just checking the figures on that. Um, so we, we are, you know, say we are publishing regularly um, statistics and figures. Um, it would be useful to know from, you know, from the industry what sort of figures and figures you would like published in, in that. Because well, take, take my point about the time it takes to validate, because uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show, whether they're lawyers or planners, waste quite a lot of time and waste quite a lot of your um, professional resource by constantly contacting PINs week after week saying, what's going on? You know, when am I going to get my appeal validated? Yeah, and there could be a number of reasons for that, Mary. I mean, as I say, I'm not uh, completely close to why validation takes a while. It, it, again, okay. it, it could be all the information that we receive at the end of the day might not be sufficient for us to, to validate that. Um, there are many variables within that and, and what might be missing from the questionnaire, et cetera. So, uh, you know, happy, happy to look at it, definitely. But um, as I say, there might be a number of reasons that that is. Right. Thank you. Chris. <clears throat> Okay, Rebecca, so I am a huge fan of the virtual events. I don't want this to be my future, but I think PINs have done an incredible job in getting these up and running. Um, I have had 
nine weeks of inquiries uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that, as are all my clients. So I need to make that absolutely clear. Um, you're having to deal with a very difficult situation. Um, I've also enjoyed meeting the case officers for the first time. For years, they've just been names on an email. That's uh, people like uh, Leanne Palmer, uh, Holly Dutton, uh, Tim Salter, and uh, Liz Humphreys. Uh, finally get to meet them. Um, but that, in a way, is, is where my question leads, which is you need that admin support there. Um, as well as the technical support. And whilst you've got over 300 inspectors, those are very small teams. That's, I mean, that is the major appeals team, caseworkers in those four names. I know you brought some other people in to try and assist with this, but have you got plans to try and expand the casework support? Because that seems to me to be the real constraint here on not having more hearings and not having more inquiries. Okay, yeah, thank, thanks, Chris. So um, just to put some figures on this, we've got around, you know, 360 odd full time equivalent salaried inspectors. Now, they're supported directly by 240, you know, case support, um, environmental planners, other professional support. So we do have a, you know, a higher figure than, than that supporting inspectors. And that doesn't include the digital element either. Um, but what we have done through reorganization ourse reorganizing ourselves to do virtual events, um, we've actually secured additional staff and redeployed staff to, to you know, to assist. Um, as I said earlier, we've, you know, through lessons learned, we've discovered that the virtual events are resource intensive and, and that you're quite right, that does involve a lot more administration support to support the event, as well as technical support too, to support the event. But what we've done, you know, we're reviewing resourcing right across to make sure that we've got adequate resources to make sure the events do run. So it's not just about the inspectors being in place, but it, it's everybody else in pins that, that is behind them to make the event happen. Um, and that's really important. So we, we do have support there, but we are currently reviewing you know, to make sure there are enough resources in the right place to make sure we can carry on and, and progress casework as we have done. Okay, and expanding expanding that role or getting more people into that role, presumably. Yeah. 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 Can, I, can I just say something that you can't, I don't think, but um, I have to say one thing that massively impressed me with the first one was that the leader of Chorley Council decided at the technical meeting two days before the hearing uh, that he was going to object to a virtual hearing, i.e. try and take the local authority out of it for lots of reasons that we can guess. In stood their ground and the event went ahead. We put submissions in. Uh, you will be getting pressure from local authorities who are trying to play tactical games with this. And I hope that Simon Gallagher is listening and that MHCLG will support you in making sure that local authorities understand playing those games is completely unacceptable. Paul, um, last but not least, you, your responsibility to choose from the many brilliant audience questions, um, far away. Uh, right, I've, I've looked at three um, and I've chosen one of them just to let you know what the three are. The first of which is the question from Stephen Snowden saying, what's the sign behind Rebecca? And you'd be pleased to know I've been studying very carefully over your shoulder. And very faintly, I can see the, the fair principality of Wales. So Cymru Ambeth. So yeah. I, I can answer that one. Um, the, the other one is the question, which was an anonymous question, asking whether in the light of the white paper, inspectors are going to have to have training in recognising beauty. I'm not sure that the inspectors I know need that training in my experience, because I'm always in front of them. So the, the question that I'm going to ask, ask is a simple one. 
Uh, and I'm going to give a shout out to uh, uh, David Gertler and also John Litton QC. Hello, John. Nice of you to tune in. Uh, great friend of mine. We started off as baby barristers uh, scrapping away years ago. And, and that's it's how meaningful some of these some of these reports are in terms of your targets. If it takes a long, long period of time from the time when you receive the appeal until the time of the start date, how useful really is it to tell us how long it will take from the start date until determination? Shouldn't it really be from the time that you actually receive the appeal to the determination? Because that gives you the real world um, uh, assessment in relation to uh, how long it really takes. Uh, as I say, that's not just uh, uh, not just me. That's that's what they're saying. That. Yeah. 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 Fully understand it. it was a little bit on on Mary's point earlier as well about the true statistics and and, and the meaning to that too. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can understand why the industry would want to know that um, you know that the end to end process and how long it actually it actually takes to get things things through. Um, and of course, we're, we're alive to the fact that things change through the you know once a, an application is submitted to the council, by the time it comes to appeal, um, even you know from when the appeal is lodged, things do change. You know, there's a different. Um, you know, policy uh, context either locally or perhaps even nationally um, viability is a key thing now that's going to come into play or, or it is already obviously with the post-covid world and, and and prior to that now um, so there are a lot of variables there are a lot of variables in there but you know we're incredibly flexible in terms of you know dealing with things like that on the day we do we do take additional evidence when it's relevant to the scheme in front of us it's not as if we we, we put things on hold so, so from when the situation was when the planning application was submitted comes through to us it's the same thing you know we we do accept that things change and our inspectors are incredibly flexible in in accepting new new evidence if you like and and, and new situations when something has changed fundamentally on a scheme you know from viability right through to perhaps other other things too i think think you've not only answered my question which is it would be helpful to have that information so thanks for that rebecca um, look forward to seeing that. And, and secondly, answered another question which was asked in the, the chat, which is about um, where you get information provided to PINs up front, and then it's many, many weeks until the, the determination that PINs will be flexible about that. That's good to hear. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks, Paul. And can I reiterate the thanks from all of us, and indeed I'm sure on behalf of all of our viewers too, um, be helpful and a lot of, a lot of reassurance and, and clarity provided there. So, so we're really grateful, Rebecca. Um, nudge of the week, um, Mary. Uh, a, a silent nudge. <laughs> oh dear, sorry about that. My uh, nudge of the week is to the authors of the planning practice guidance, actually, who have um, come forward with some new advice to cover the new legislation on use class orders, uh, upward uh, extensions. There's quite a lot of material that's come out this week and it's useful. So well done to them. Fantastic, Mary. Um, and champion of the week. Uh, Sorry, you were the champion. I think I was the champion. <laughs> <laughs> You're the nudge, Sasha. Sorry. I was too. Thursday afternoon brain. <laughs> Sasha, the real nudge. It's Paul who's the nudge of the week, I think. <laughs> Should we try and take the so, so, so nudge was, was me, champion was Mary. You just heard champion. Can I, can I, if the nudge is me, I'm going to nudge Charlie to get the script right. Well, I'm going to make Sasha happy by telling you the, the nudge of the week, which is going to be uh, the Secretary of State that's been making some comments in relation to the white paper in various speeches. And the nudge is not mine, it's Gus McDonald's, the ex-Cabinet Secretary, 
who's giving a speech today, uh, essentially warning government against over-promising. Uh, for those of us that have been doing this job a while, there have been lots of reforms at lots of different times where lots of different governments have promised that we're about to go into this brave new world where planning will be straightforward and we'll resolve all these issues. It does strike me that the Secretary of State is in danger of over-promising what will actually be quite a difficult task. For example, the point about recruiting inspectors to actually examine all these plans. Now, the, that was nudge, Charlie, just to let you know. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I'll get my coat. Um, there was a reason, actually, why we had you as um, our, um, our last but one slot, because um, we, we've got some news about Paul, which um, Chris is going to lead on. We, we do. We have some very significant news here on have we got uh, planning news for you. And it is that Paul has been elected the head of chambers at King's Chambers in Manchester, now that is a huge honour for any barrister and what non-lawyers may not appreciate is that being elected the head of chambers is an extremely prestigious accolade. In days gone by, uh, we were often named simply as the chambers of Paul Tucker, QC, and in a very large set of chambers like Paul's, there's often lots of different groups of barristers in different practice groups. And so the head of chambers has to command the respect and support of all those groups in chambers. Um, a set of barristers' chambers is rarely short of strong personalities or sometimes strong egos, and there's got to be somebody with a strong enough character to, to handle all that. Paul is not the first member of the show to be elected into this position. Mary was the, uh, the joint head of Cornerstone Chambers, and she's rightly highlighted to Paul the enormous amount of work he's now got to take on. I just wanted to say on a personal level, dear friend, that um, Paul has always been somebody who has been positive about everything and unfailingly courteous to everybody he meets in much the same way as Keith Lindblom and Ian Dove have been. And so on behalf of all of us on the show, uh, I just want to say what a huge congratulations to you. And uh, we're really pleased for you and everybody at King's. And, and Paul, you are now truly the, the King of the North. And as you know, uh, we may be barristers, but we're a long way from Krusty. And we're well aligned with popular culture. And so how else to properly celebrate your election, King of the North, than with a video clip from Game of Thrones to protect the identity of some of the faces. Uh, faces have been changed in this clip. Uh, we've also paid the relevant copyright infringements. And, uh, <laughs> and, That's uh, bank account. <laughs> and hard hours were spent editing this by Charlie and Rob, who is our IT guru from Blue Bear IT. Rob, over to you. <laughs> there will be more fights to come. House Glover will stand behind House Paul Tucker. As we have for a thousand years. <laughs> and I will stand behind Paul Tucker from King's Chambers. <laughs> the King in the North! <laughs> the King in the North! Thank you. <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Charlie, 
Charlie on mute. And Paul, can I say, if I'm not on mute, thanks for embarrassing, us, embarrassing those of us who will never be heads of chambers. Which you can't <laughs> yeah, well, th thank you to all those in King's Landing from those of us near the wall. <laughs> Charlie, you're on mute. Charlie, our, our chair is on mute. <laughs> we have to pay money for that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and he, he can't unmute it. This is interesting. How do we end the show, Mary? I think it's time for us to say goodbye to and thanks very much to our very special guest, Rebecca Phillips. Thank you all for listening. And as you can gather, we started with some hiccups on the IT. We're ending with some hiccups on the IT. But rest assured, we will be back same time next week for another cracking edition of Have We Got Planning News For You. Bye-bye and thanks for listening. So <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was really, really brilliant. <laughs> well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.